When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. And uh, we are continuing our Miami Book Fair series. And today we have lawyer turned acclaimed author Ben Fountain and his new book, Beautiful Country Burn Again Democracy, Rebellion, and Revolution. And um, Ben is, uh, was born in Chapel Hill. He's a former practicing attorney and the author of Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, which won him the Penn Hemingway Award. And he's also the author of the novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which was the winner of the National Books Critics Circle Award and a finalist for the National Book Award and was made into a major motion picture. Um, so, Mr. Fountain, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I, I noticed that uh, you went to law school at Duke University. And uh, a few years back, I interviewed uh, one of the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 segment on the whole um, Duke lacrosse scandal. And uh, there was a segment there where they uh, quoted a North Carolina judge who said, I lived in North Carolina my whole life except for the four years I went to Duke. <laughs> Yeah, that's an old joke in um, in North Carolina. It, it's it's viewed as a as a, a bit of a separate beast from the rest of the state, just because it gets so many um, students from out of the state. I was just curious about that. It just stuck with me. Any event, so you have a new book out, um, "Beautiful Country Burn Again," and we'll get to the title in a minute. But I'm I'm curious because. You were the book is the result of you being asked in 2015 by uh, the Guardian to to cover the the presidential campaign. How did that come about? Uh, well, there was there's a very fine editor at the Guardian named David Taylor, and um, when he was at the Times of London, he had read and liked Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and reviewed it and interviewed me for that book and uh, then he moved over to the Guardian and as 2016 was approaching he wanted he was looking for uh, you know a a different take on the election from the usual straight journalism slash punditry you know, approach to things and um, uh, he felt like it would be interesting to get a novelist's approach to these uh, strange times that were developing in America. So he got in touch with me and and uh, said we would love to have you write on the election. And and by then I was 
I felt like we were in uncharted waters, and this was something I was thinking about a lot and wanted to explore further, and the offer from The Guardian gave me a chance to do that. It's interesting you, you, you mentioned that because one of the uh, re- reviews is uh, John Meekham, you know, the historian, author of The Soul of America. The, he said that this book um, said, sometimes it takes a novelist to capture a world gone mad. With clarity of mind and the most observant of eyes, Fountain gives us a memorable, unique portrait of an American moment which is likely to shape us for far longer than any of us would like to contemplate. And uh, so going into this assignment... You know, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that Katie Turer, who uh, covered the Trump campaign, you know, initially was given that job as a, a short-term assignment because nobody thought the campaign would last long. And so you you get involved in 2015. What what were you your expectation of what you, what exactly you were getting into? Well, by the end of the summer of 2015. I felt like something new was afoot in America. Trump emerged from the summer leading the Republican field looking stronger than anybody. His campaign certainly had more heat and more juice than than anybody's. And um and this was after a summer when he had said things that would have destroyed a conventional candidate. And as we got toward the end of twenty fifteen I felt like this guy I mean, we were all waiting for him to say the thing that would finally take him down, the thing that would be, you know, just cross the line, be a step too far. And um, he kept saying outrageous things and getting stronger. And I, I will be frank, and I have witnesses, people I started telling this to at the end of 2015, I said, I think this guy has a 50-50 chance wow. at least of being the next president. And yeah, people, you know, my friends were pretty skeptical and or horrified, but <laughs> I just felt like we were we were experiencing something new in the country. So, so you went in knowing that that there's some type, you know, shift of a a seismic nature. Well, not knowing certainly, but just um, you know, just observing what was happening and the fact that. He was he was a new phenomenon in American politics. Um, just talking in in the most transgressive and offensive terms, uh, and and not simply surviving but thriving. And so I felt like, well, all bets are off. Anything can happen. But like most people, I I was thinking in the back of my mind, there will be a point where he goes too far. Right, and uh, of course that never happened. Well, I mean, it. it well, some people would disagree. Say it. It did happen, but there were no consequences. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what I mean. I mean, yeah. he. Um, you know, he was not whatever the things he said, the things he did, did not destroy his candidacy. And and so your title is um, comes from a Joan Didion poem. No, it comes from a Robinson Jefferson poem, um, but I discovered those lines while I was reading Joan Didion's book, South, by, South and West, and she quotes that Robinson Jefferson, those lines, um, beautiful country burn again, point Pinos down to the Sur rivers, burn again with bitter wonders, land and ocean and the Carmel water. 
and um, I just felt like uh, it was a suitable title for the book in that I feel like um, America has gone through two reinventions in the course of its history, the first being the Civil War and Emancipation, the second being the Great Depression and the New Deal, when social stresses became such that um, the country faced an existential crisis and had to reinvent itself if it was going to continue as a as an arguably genuine democracy, and I think uh, we're approaching that point again, that point of existential crisis. We may have to burn in some fashion, hopefully not literally. And you know, and also you know in your in your book that each of those prior crises came eighty years apart. Yeah, and that, yeah, probably and that eighty years apart. And we're kind of at that moment now. But I guess, what exactly, why do you think we're at that moment? I think, um, I mean, you can look at it in terms of equality and inequality. And the founding principle of the country, and it's right there in the Declaration of Independence, is all men created equal, right? all endowed with equal rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's the equality principle. Certainly it has not been the lived experience of many millions of Americans over the course of our history, but you can place the center of our history in the struggle over those words, whether they are going to be the lived experience of the country. And um, the fight for the principle and the fight against it. And uh, I think when inequality reaches the point, reaches a, a certain critical mass um, that the country has to reinvent itself or perish as a constitutional democracy. Um, when inequality becomes too great that the contradictions cannot be lived with and the country is forced to into a, a, a close examination of itself by virtue of existential crisis, and um, the pr two previous times, we reinvented ourselves for the better. Um, we did become a country where the equality principle became more the lived experience of the country. Um, certainly emancipation was a big step forward. Um, we all know that, that the equality gained by people of color through emancipation was problematic and and beleaguered and at times non-existent but um it was a step forward and the new deal was a great st step forward by the time of the great depression um many millions of americans were held in de facto servitude wage servitude without meaningful self-determined self-determination or agency over their own lives and the social restructuring of the New Deal um, gave many of those people some degree of agency over their own lives, some degree of, of you know, practical equality, economic equality and political equality. The, um, the New Deal society has been rolled back in very profound ways in the last 35 years, and we are seeing... The result of that is tremendous inequality in our society, not just economic inequality, but political inequality. 
how can a person working three jobs and and making forty thousand dollars a year how can you say that they have the same kind of political equality as the Koch brothers who spend nine hundred million dollars you know in an, in a presidential election cycle there's a lot lot there to discuss and one of it is kind of the economic disparity and at one point in your book you mentioned by virtually every measure relative to other rich nations the u.s lost ground since 1970s we're shorter height is a prime indicator of social conditions we don't live long more of our babies die before their first birthdays wage and educational achievements have stagnated and inequalities of wealth and opportunity are higher than any time since the late 19th century. Yes. And um, what do you attribute this to? Well, let's look at the society that the New Deal produced. Um, For 50 years, from the middle of the 1930s to the middle of the 1980s, there were no banking crises, in the American economy, we had the business cycle as opposed to um, periods of boom and bust, which until the New Deal had been the norm in American society, along with banking crises. Um, uh, income for the bottom 90% of Americans rose by 75% between 1950 and 1980, uh, and income for that bottom 90% rose faster than income for the top 10%, who, by the way, still did quite well. Uh, there was a vigorous social safety net that, in addition to smoothing out downturns in the business cycle, also helped many millions of Americans gain some measure of autonomy and self-determination in their own lives by virtue of the GI Bill Uh or cheap and good public education. Um, And there was also collective, strong collective bargaining in this country so that workers, the people who were producing all this wealth, had had a decent shot at the bargaining table of getting their share of of that rising productivity. Since the early 1980s, since the so-called Reagan Revolution, there has been a systematic dismantling of that New Deal society and the structures that made that broad prosperity possible. And, uh, I mean, we've seen it in banking and finance. We've seen it in, in uh, the rise of corporate monopolies. Uh, you know, you see it in the, in the, you know, attacks on the social safety net. In our public education system, now it's the norm for young people to come out of college with thirty, forty, a hundred, one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt. That's a new thing in American society. So, uh, all these things have an effect on people's quality of life. And so, in the statistics you just mentioned, you know, mortality, height. Um, maternal mortality, infant mortality, drug addiction rates, these are all symptoms of, of you know, a fraying social contract. And one of the, the items which you touched on briefly, but which I think may be a, a very important driver of this, would be the um, decline in unionization, since that's yeah. what guaranteed certain levels of income. 
Well, it, it, it not so much guaranteed certain levels of income, but it helped level the playing field for you know workers, um, people who were there on the on the factory lines in the warehouses, you know the job doers as opposed to the job creators, and um, I mean economists call this the mixed economy, where you have robust free enterprise. Um, you have uh, a significant and smart degree of government regulation to, you know, prevent, you know, the very powerful forces of capitalism from steamrolling everything else in society. And then the third aspect is, you've got organized labor. You've got meaningful collective bargaining, bargaining rights, so that workers can sit down at the bargaining table with, you know, big powerful corporations. And you know, have some meaningful, you know, bargaining power in in you know deciding who gets what. And um, so, the Democrats started cutting loose that traditional part of their constituency in the late 1970s, namely unions. I mean, Jimmy Carter, um, there was a, a a union reform bill in the works in Congress that that would have updated collective bargaining for the changing economy, and um, Carter let it languish, and ultimately it died. And then the New Democrats of the 1980s, they continued to cut, you know, to, to take labor for granted. And, um, and so I think that's, that's played a tremendous role in the rise of inco- income inequality in the country in the last 35 years. And, and you talked earlier about, you know, the, the various sides seismic shifts, the uh, existential crises that we've had. And one of them was the Civil War, which obviously was quite a calamity with six hundred over 600,000 deaths on each side. Um, but there are some people who contend that we are having a cold Civil War now. You know, I could, um, I could certainly entertain that argument. You could say that the 1861-1865 Civil War never really ended. True. That we have had a low-grade Civil War, race-based, uh, racism-based Civil War ever since. Certainly, um, large numbers of people of color have died in this country since 1865 um, in the struggle over whether people of color were going to have equal citizenship stature. And um, and I think, uh, you know, it, regardless of whether you think that's a winning argument or not, it's a useful argument to think with, to, to view the country through. And um, I think ultimately race and economics are very much interweaved and bound together in the history of this country. That's certainly the case. But one thing that's bound in the history of the country is advertising, and we're going to take a short break for our advertisers. After, So we'll be back with more on um, Beautiful Country Burn Again after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only at webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress. 
empowering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Webmasterradio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Ben Fountain. He's the author of Beautiful Country, Burn Again, and he will be at at the Miami Book Fair um, talking about his book, and that will be... um, that will be on Sunday, November 18th. He's on a panel on our democracy, along with James Miller, who's the author of Can Democracy Work? A Short History of a Radical Idea, who we will also be airing an interview with as well. So, um, so Ben, the, we were talking earlier about the idea of a uh, having a cold civil war, so to speak, as opposed to the hot civil war we had a century ago. And um, right now we have... Today, just the reports of uh, explosive devices being sent to a number of Democratic figures from President Obama to former President Clinton to um, several other people, and uh, which suggests that you know, it was somewhat alarming and I don't know if it's an isolated incident, but I'm just mindful of something Newt Gingrich once said about his approach to um, leadership, and he said that we have to attack the other side with the ferocity only seen in civil wars. Yeah, I quote him uh, in Beautiful Country, Burn Again. I quote that statement in the chapter called Trump Rising. Um, And I'm looking at the rise of extreme partisan politics in the 1990s. And Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay were prime movers um, in that development in American political life. I think it's, I think it's extremely dangerous. Um, words have consequences. Tactics have consequences. Um, Newt Gingrich was, was willing to do pretty much anything, including shutting down the government, um, if it worked to partisan advantage. And um, there's a point at which, uh, you know, we do live in a partisan system. And, um, and, and there's the working assumption is that through the vigorous, you know, competition of ideas and agendas and ideologies, ultimately the best will prevail. But when you start viewing your political opposition, and by the way, viewing your fellow Americans um, as actors in bad faith, and, um, and that they're evil, they're out to you know, do harm to the country, 
uh, when you start using that kind of language, um, absent the strictest and surest kind of proof, that's a very dangerous road to go down. And we've been going down it for quite a while. And, um, uh, you know, I think if we don't reverse that course, it's going to get very ugly. And we, we, we have been there before. I mean, there was some of this vitriol right around the time of Kennedy's assassination. Um, and, and even going back further, in fact, I saw Doris Kearns Goodwin about two weeks ago. And she mentioned this, this, the caning of uh, Senator, Senator Sumner from Massachusetts yeah. by a congressman from South Carolina whose name escapes me. And that, um, you know, it was such a horrific event. And especially since the, the caner, the, the congressman from South Carolina, was heralded and praised for his, what he'd done. But the, in the North, um, the caning was viewed with such disgust and outrage that it actually led to events that would ultimately lead to the end of slavery. And one of them, which was the founding of the Republican Party. So she said, you know, she was somewhat optimistic because even in the, the worst events, there's a seed that could lead to a reversal of things. And I'm, I'm wondering, would you say that you're hopeful at this point in time or are you alarmed? Well, I think, you know, in those kinds of events, there are seeds of, you know, various stripes. Uh, the caning of Sumner by, I think his name was Preston Brooks. Yes. Um, uh, it, it, it galvanized, it helped to galvanize and activate the abolitionist movement in the country. But certainly there was no guarantee that it ultimately would lead to abolition of slavery and emancipation. Um, you know, it, it it could have well led to, you know, the the splitting of the United States that the Confederacy had won, and there were many moments in the Civil War when it could have gone either way. So um, it's a dangerous... These are dangerous events um, when it gets to physical violence and bloodletting. Um, and... Uh, and if if one side thinks that that's going to work to its advantage, uh, I think they're deluded because there are too many variables, there are too many uncertainties. What we're dealing with is is too volatile a political substance, um, really, for either side to control. These things to, tend to take on a life of their own, and um, and so I mean, so Congressman Brooks um, caned. Sumner to within an inch of his life, but ultimately it was South Carolina and the rest of the South that lost right. and paid the ultimate price. So be careful when you start engaging in these tactics. You may be the ultimate loser. Right. And then the you know, same as you recall, Gingrich. You know, yes. he, he, is, uh, he ended up resigning as speaker because his strategy had backfired and he humiliated himself. Right. Um, he's a highly paid K Street lobbyist now, so in personal <laughs> don't, terms... Don't it, cry it, for him. Yeah, it turned out okay for him. Isn't it uncanny the way these guys managed to land on their feet? Um, 
while leaving tremendous destruction in their wake. So speaking today, are you, are you hopeful, especially with the midterms coming up, or are you, are you alarmed? I'm both at once. Okay. And um, and maybe it depends on on you know what time of day or what day you ask me. I think ultimately it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me. You get up every day and you do the work, and um, and there are reasons to be hopeful and there are reasons to be pessimistic. But ultimately, you know, those of us for whom the life of the country. Uh, uh, you know, is really a part of our interior personal lives, and and we feel like it it matters not just for us and our families, but for you know the country and and the future of the human race. I mean, you get up every day and you do the work. If Donald Trump had not won the Republican nomination, would we still be facing this existential crisis anyway? Was it, was this a, a a predestined date, given what had happened over the last 20 years? Well, I mean, you know, the country makes its choice, and um, and Trump was elected according to our system. Um, I mean, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, I think that would have slowed down the day of reckoning. It would have delayed it somewhat. But with Hillary Clinton, you, I, I really don't think you would have gotten a fundamental change in the power structure of the country um you might have gotten some some you know changes around the fringes that would help some working people but um the power equation all indications were it was not going to change significantly under hillary and i mean the way i look at it is the democratic party is is um the party where things get worse more slowly for working people they don't really get better, you know, in a meaningful way on a broad scale. Um, when, we're, when Republicans are in power, um, working people do worse faster. When Democrats are in power, establishment Democrats, um, things get worse for working people a little more slowly. But, you know, the establishment Democratic Party, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it, ha- it has to take a large share of the blame for um, the degradation of life for working people in this country the last 35 years. And why is that? I mean, they've only they, they haven't been in power for 30 for the last 35 years for starters. Well, um, you know, Bill Clinton was president for 8 years, uh, Barack Obama was president for 8 years. Um, the Democrats have uh, on balance, I expect Republicans have had control of Congress, you know, the majority of the time, you know, in the last 35 years. But to the extent Democrats have been in power, um, you look at, you know, wages have stagnated since the late 1970s. Wages um, went up under Clinton. Poverty, poverty rate, wages went up under Clinton. Poverty rate was the lowest as it had been. No, uh, well, no, constant. actually, in real terms, um, wages fell under Clinton. And, um, yeah, I mean, certain measures of poverty went down, but a big part of that was due to the fact of the tremendously high incarceration rates for blacks 
they are not included in unemployment numbers. And, you know, whatever the gains on paper that were made under Clinton, um, you know, he was a few months out of office when things started going to hell. And um, and the real society realized that uh, a large part of that Clinton prosperity had been built on debt, on debt and on, um, you know, corporations playing games with accounting and boosting profits. Um, but as far as trickle down to the working people of the country, um, wages in real terms continued to fall throughout the 90s. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I, my understanding was that the Clinton had an increase in, in working people's wages. Yeah, in, 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 in number terms, yes. I mean, the minimum wage crept up, you know, incrementally but um in real terms in terms of buying power um i think wages peaked in 1968 or in the late 70s but i lay out the numbers in the book in the in the chapter called hillary doesn't live here anymore right i saw I go that through, yeah yeah i go through the democratic legacy and and um and you know if 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 my numbers are wrong um i i would most certainly like to know because uh, you know, we're always learning. We need to be challenged. Um, and uh, so, if if um, if I've got the numbers wrong, let's pursue that. Certainly. Now, um, what would you like the Democrats to do differently? I'd like the Democrats to get back to um, working meaningfully for. Um, poor people in this country, working class, middle class, and um, I think one of the most important things Democrats can do is to get behind, um, uh, you know, anti-monopoly laws and regulations. Bill Clinton, when he ran in 1992, that was the first time in 100 years that the Democratic Party did not have an anti-monopoly plank in its platform. Up to that point, the Democratic Party had been the party that viewed with great suspicion concentrations of corporate power and wealth. Understanding that, or based on the assumption that um, monopoly corporations, they discouraged competition, and ultimately they damaged local communities and local businesses. And that's been borne out in the last 35 years, certainly with, you know, with, with how Walmart and Amazon have devastated local business and, and left, you know, communities across the country reeling. So anti-monopoly regulation and, and laws would be one thing. Another thing would be meaningful reform and regulation of finance and banking. Um, between 1935 and 1985, there were there was no banking large scale banking crisis in the United States, and um, uh, well, there was a savings and loan crisis. Yes, and that 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 occurred you know in the second half of the decade of the eighties. Um, with I mean, in nineteen eighty two, there was Garn Saint Germain Act, which right. Reagan signed with much joy, which you know deregulated the savings and loan industry, and within six years. That industry had blown up and 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 melted down. Um, so you know, look, you know, I think 
the New Deal was so successful, it became invisible. People began to take it for granted. And um, I think one of the most striking examples of that is uh, in our banking and financial system and, and the way that deregulation um, has, has led to extremes of boom and bust and also tremendous concentrations of wealth in our economy. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more from Ben Fountain. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Learn more at miamibookfair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions for the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Your virtual webmaster frat house. Webmasterradio.fm. Hey, bring your togas. Webmasterradio.fm. Thanks for listening. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Webmasterradio.fm. Well, Webmaster Radio may, may be everywhere, but we're here with Ben Fountain, the author of Beautiful Country, Burn Again. And we were talking over the last few minutes about the direction of politics in America today and what change may be needed, um, particularly on the Democratic side. And Ben, are there certain leaders that, that speak to you who might be the agents of this um, transformation you think we need? Yeah, um, you know, Bernie Sanders was um, certainly comes to mind. He began talking about, um, you know, pot, uh, checkbook issues, you know, kitchen table issues for Americans, and and um, he began pushing the democratic, the establishment of the Democratic Party, um, you know, toward a more progressive kind of politics. I mean. When he spoke about, you know, free tuition at public universities, I mean, that's getting back to, you know, the model 
of the New Deal society where public education was cheap or free. And not only did it benefit many millions of individuals, but the numbers show uh, it benefited society tremendously. Um, there are all kinds of there's all kinds of research and numbers that show that you know however many dollars society invests in the higher education of an individual, um, society gets many many more dollars in return from the increased productivity of that citizen, that individual. I, I think there's actually there are statistics, um, particularly with the GI Bill. I think the multiplier was somewhere between like three and six. I mean, yeah, that sounds right. And you know, there's a, there's other measures like the Solov residual and um, the Flynn effect that, um, and and I cite those in the book where, um, you know, society benefits tremendously from its investments in public education. Um, another critical thing that Bernie Sanders was talking about was health care, universal health care. Um, and uh, yes, universal health care is extraordinarily expensive. It, it, is, it is a tremendous dedication of resources for any society. And yet, it's shown over and over, certainly in the democracies of Western Europe, that ultimately society comes out ahead by investing in universal health care and making sure citizens, you know, have access to the things that will enable them to live a productive and dignified life. So um, I think that's, you know, that's where the future of the country is. And if we don't start, you know, making sure that, that our citizens have, you know, some measure of, of a standard of living above bare subsistence, a standard of living where health care and or educating your kids um, is not, does not pose an imminent threat of bankruptcy, um, I think for us to survive as an arguably genuine democracy, that's the, that's the direction we need to go in. Who else speaks to you besides Bernie Sanders? Uh, well, I live in Texas. And um, Beto O'Rourke is running the kind of campaign that um, that I'm really proud to see. He's talking about things that matter to people's lives on the most basic level: health care, education, um, meaningful wages, collective bargaining. Um, so, and and I would say certainly Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is another one of those people. And, um, you know, really, I mean, uh, the right wing in this country these days likes to, to portray such figures in our public life as, as you know, fire-breathing socialists slash communists. But really, they are, they are taking the same line that President Dwight Eisenhower took in the 1950s. I mean, Eisenhower was to the left of Barack Obama. And, um, I mean, you look at his record. He, he um, inaugurated the interstate highway system, you know, a tremendous infrastructure um, expenditure uh, and dedication of resources for the country that's paid tremendous benefits. He was very much in favor of collective bargaining. He expanded Social Security. 
Um, he pushed back against the military-industrial complex. Um, so, you know, our politics has changed so much in the last 60 years, and we've lost sight of that at our peril. And um, after Trump won, there's a, a, a lobbyist I know who is tied into Republicans, and you know, he, he was a Trump supporter, but he also had predicted Trump would win. And um, he said to me, he was almost consoling me after Trump won. He says, he said, Ben, um, our time is running out. He says, can you just look at the demographics? We, we, this is gonna, our last gasp at power. You know, the, the future it belongs to you guys entirely unless you screw it up. And so it, do you see the demographic wave that everyone predicts will make the country more democratic, most likely, as being the, the pressure valve that will um, prevent you know, the, the, you know, a major um, existential event, or do you think that's going to lead to it? No, I don't think demography is destiny, um, and you see that in Texas. Um, I mean, for years, the Democratic Party has been predicting, waiting, forecasting the imminent arrival of power based on the increasing numbers of Hispanic people in Texas. But there is nothing that says Hispanic people or minorities you know, of any color um, have to vote Democratic. Uh, you've got to give people a compelling reason to vote. And American politics as a whole and Democratic po politics in particular have not given enough people a compelling enough reason to come out and vote. And um, when you add to that the uh, voter suppression efforts, the quite systematic and organized and premeditated um, voter suppression efforts uh, you know, sponsored by the Republican Party in this country, I think there's a real question as to, um, you know, whether a genuine popular movement um, could overcome all the obstacles to voting, uh, you know, in in our in our current system. So, uh, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion at all. You know, it's interesting. You conclude. I'm glad you mentioned voting because you conclude your book by talking about the um, Shelby County Supreme Court decision mm -hmm. and, uh, and Justice Roberts' uh, opinion there, which it was just astounding. And I think you do a great description of it. And uh, um, when, I, when I read it, I didn't know that you were, had a law degree. But um, it basically, he's, he's substituting his view of reality from what was actually the case. You know, he's... Um, whitewashing really what the, the the Congress had found, and decided that I have a different view, and I'm going to substitute my view. Bennett whitewashing is the right term. Um, I mean, the congressional record ran to something like fifteen thousand pages um, of evidence, testimony uh, in favor of renewing the Voting Rights Act. And, and, you know, as part of that, the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And, um, uh, you know, not only did renewal of the Voting Rights Act 
passed both houses of Congress by tremendous majorities. President George W. Bush signed it into law. In effect, what, what John Roberts was doing was substituting his judgment, his own experience, which is a very narrow slice of American experience, um, that of a white male who grew up middle class, attended Harvard College, Harvard Law School, um, has spent his life in the lap of the establishment. There's nothing dishonorable about that, but ultimately it's a very narrow slice of experience. And for him to supplant the collective judgment and evidence, you know, in the record is really a breathtaking act of hubris and arrogance. And it's also a touch point because you know when the Voting Rights Act amendments were passed under President um, George W. Bush, I believe about two thousand six or some t- mm-hmm. some point around there. There, as you mentioned, it, it passed the Senate unanimously. I think only six votes against it in the House. Mm-hmm. There was un- consensus, almost complete unanimity, that voting was to be encouraged. And that yes. voter suppression was bad. And you take that, you know, a matter of a few years and that one Supreme Court decision, and all of a sudden we have a partisan difference. You know, Congressman Sensenbrenner, who was the, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee at the time, both that the bill was passed and at the time of the decision, he actually introduced a bill to clarify and reverse the decision, and even though he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, he couldn't get a hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Sh- Shelby County was the result of a, a long, slow-burning movement in this country, um, you know, to push the country rightward, hard rightward. And... Um, you know the Federalist Society, which which grooms and nurtures, um, you know, right wing candidates for judicial posts. That's part of it. Um, I mean, I think we have to face the fact, in the bluntest terms, that there are many people in this country who really don't believe in democracy. There are powerful forces and institutions in this country who are actively working against democracy and against genuine representative government. And um, the current Secretary of State in Georgia, who's, who's um, the gubernatorial candidate on the Republican side, he's one of them. And, um, uh, you know, oh, what's his name in Kansas who's running for governor? Uh, he's another one. The, uh, he was, he was um, Trump's voter suppression czar. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we have to face the fact, I mean, all Americans pay lip service to democracy and the ideal of democracy, but it doesn't take a genius to look around and, and conclude that actually there are a lot of powerful people in this country who don't believe in democracy and are actively working against it. And we only have a few minutes left, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this book. But if people want to learn more about you, and um, well, how should you follow you? I didn't see a Twitter account or a website for you. Yeah, I'm not on social media. I don't have a website. <laughs> um, 
You know, I would say if if you think, you know, what I'm saying either on the page or or you know or the media is worthwhile, go have a look at the books, and go have a look at the books and the writers who I look to, you know, for guidance and and an attempt at understanding why things are the way they are. Um, you know, social media has its role. And certainly the media at large has its role. But um, it's gotten to the point now, I call it the fantasy industrial complex complex in America, where um, we're so besieged by media, by all these stimuli coming at us 24-7. And in a way, it's a compulsion machine. I mean, you see one thing, and immediately you're off to the next thing. And there's very little time for you know to absorb and process and contemplate and study and i think that's one of the great virtues of books books are not infallible by any means but they give us human space to think and contemplate and absorb and form our own judgments and um i am not on social media and i hope i never will be um <laughs> i'm a person of the book i like books uh, I like the human space they give me, and so uh, if someone's interested in, um, you know, having a closer look at, at the things I'm writing about, I would urge them to go to the books. And you'll be in Miami on November 18th at the Miami Book Fair. In addition, on the show notes, we have a link to your website, um, speaker profile website, and that's available at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, so please sure to follow us at Cyber Law Radio. And I want to thank Ben for joining us. And um, good luck with his tour on Beautiful Country, Burn Again. Be sure to check it out. And be sure to check us out next week. And this same place will have more um, updates on what the latest in Internet law and more authors from the uh, Miami Book Fair. So join us next week. And that's all we have for now. This is Bennett Kelly um, saying have a great week. Go Red Sox, and uh, check us out at the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. Thanks again. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.